0: This is our third gathering, listening, probing the Sarangama Sutra. <clears throat> Beginning with a poem by William Stafford, who you've heard me speak of before, called A Ritual to Read to Each Other. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world. In following the wrong God home, we may miss our star. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind. Though we could fool each other, we should consider if we get lost in the dark, it is important that awake people be awake or a breaking line may discourage us back to sleep. The signals we give, yes or no or maybe, should be clear, the darkness around us is deep. What kind of person are you? What kind of person am I? Are we aware that the darkness around us is deep? Or do we not believe there's darkness around us? Is the light around us deep? What are the signals we give each other? Yes. No, me. There's many a small betrayal in the mind. In our book, That Is Not Your Mind, Robert Rosenbaum says, change is ubiquitous. But changing our conditioned habits requires the humility of step-by-step specificity. We are biological beings who get tired and forget. We are social beings subject to conditioning and karma. All my ancient karma. mind, greed, hate, and delusion born your body, speech, and mind. What are the signals we give to ourselves about being awake? Are we engaged with the practice of being awake? What are the signals? we give ourselves about having a practice. Yes, no, maybe. These words, ritual and conditioned and humility, often I find myself using them and thinking, oh, I know exactly what they mean. But I always like going to the dictionary. Maybe that is where I started. Used to look up everything in the dictionary when I was a child. As an adult, less. Kind of one of those habits of thinking I know. So a ritual is a specific observable mode of behavior an observance or a performance of ceremonial acts prescribed by usually traditional religious rites an act done in accordance with some social custom or normal procedure we know though that we have rituals that we do that have nothing to do with so-called ritual acts When I get up in the morning, first thing I do is go make a cup of coffee. Ritual. When it's not there, I'm unhappy. I feel my entitled self most. There's no milk in the house. There's something that gets in the way of my ritual. Cranky, grumpy. This word conditioned is characterized by predictable or conditioned pattern of behavior. Just like in the poem. A pattern of behavior that someone else or that even we established may prevail rather than the waking up fresh. Be alive presence, humility, freedom from pride or arrogance, the quality or state of being humble. So whether we come here on Friday mornings with a like or a dislike for ritual, we actually do it. Before 8 a.m. usually. We prepare ourselves at home, or we arrive at the church to set up the room and the altar. We quiet, quiet down, and either with a click or with a sitting ourselves on the seat, we begin zazen, sitting quietly, just breathing, being ourselves for thirty minutes, just ourselves, nowhere to go nothing to do. No one else to be. And then we hear a bell. We listen to and we chant a well-being ceremony with names of people who have died or who are sick. Some of those people are people we know personally. Others we don't. We just open to the fact that we are all suffering. Affirming some kind of trust and intimacy in being together. Maybe it's our humility also, having the opportunity to be revealed. We saw this when we did our Jukai ceremony. Also our Jizo ceremonies. We made individual and collective commitments to a ritual honoring, turning our consciousness and our physical body, all of our bodies, all together toward awakening, awakening to a sacred moment, a sacred rite, the time in our lives of making a vow to be of help, to serve others, to practice ethical conduct. The repetition of this over the years has really helped me. Maybe it has helped you. I don't think that my crankiness about not getting my coffee helps anybody particularly, but I stick to it anyway. I make it as strong as I possibly can. because I get really cranky, it's watery and weak. But what I get to see is that my conditional response is really a very clear signal in this case. It's a no. I don't like that state of being. But I get lost in that conditioning. I see that. And I'm not too happy seeing that I feel righteous about and upset. I've been to some retreats where they don't serve coffee. Just... Herbal tea. How are you supposed to wake up with herbal tea? Some of you may disagree. It's my signal. <clears throat> but really, like many of the habitual conditioned ways we have of limiting ourselves, it really gives us this distorted size of ourselves in the world. We're not so big. Really teeny. You can see how it lacks humility. There are many other places there too. I think about you know what happens when you have a moment in the car behind the steering wheel with somebody else who you think takes your place or moves sooner than they should and cuts you off or if they have a difficult word for you or a gesture, easy to immediately feel that sort of arrogant, I am me, I have status. You don't recognize it, I'm going to cut you off. And that happens in our personal relationships, of course, too. Someone doesn't treat us just exactly how we want to be treated. And usually we end up not saying anything about it. But there is that conditioned response to pull away. To be silent. There is many a small betrayal of the mind. So this morning in our breakout groups, I wanted to take a look at these betrayals. How we might see some of our ritual behaviors. Feeling justified to act in a particular way, to bring forward hurt feelings rather than really looking at the specificity. What happens? What is it? that comes up, that clouds our mind. And could we change the habit? Could we change it by being compassionate, by hearing it as a cry from the world, just as Avalokiteshvara does, our Matron Saint, who, according to the Surin and in all the teachings, hears each cry equally. Whether you are a child, impoverished and hungry, or as Robert Rosenbaum points out, you are a whiny adult who is suffering from overconsumption of something. After all, we are biological beings. We get tired we forget. We're social beings, subject to conditioning and karma. And it is important for awake people to be awake. The wheel of Dharma turns without pause. It's vast beyond measure. But we live our little lives here on three-dimensional surfaces bumping along where the rims of our life meet the road, occasionally pierced by sharp objects. We, little whirlpools of desire, self-centered energy systems pulling, sucking along, and then we get pushed off the road into aversion. We roll. Who knows where we land? You don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are. A pattern that others made may prevail in the world. And we might follow the wrong God home and miss our star. So as we said, Avalokiteshvara hears all the cries of the world equally. And from our book, I just wanted to read a little bit about her. The androgynous, actually, her, him, they. Avalokiteshvara knows that ambivalence causes suffering, but so does certainty. In our partisan self-righteousness, we forget that these cries equally are our opponents, along with our own. When we think of the Bodhisattva listening to the cries of the world, we might imagine the keening of mourners and the wails of people in agony. This mistakes the practice of hearing with the sounds that are actually heard. The enlightened hearing of compassion is equally receptive to all cries. So it's not just that the The cries are all equal. The listening is all equal. Whether they are heard with dark pleasure or blindingly bright pain, every being is continuously crying out the first noble truth, the suffering of existence itself. The book goes on to say the cries of the world are just as they are. We hear them as pleasing or harsh, the conditioning of our ears. I know that Neil is, as an ophthalmologist, talking a lot about sight and the eyes, but I also am really aware, especially as I feel like sometimes I'm losing some hearing, that my ears. Also, do that sort of betrayal of the mind sometimes. Perhaps the most powerful cry impelling us around the carousel of our life and death is I love you. Expressed or repressed, voiced in words, glances adoring or beseeching, touches which are caresses. Or clenches. I love you. It's sought. It's feared. A bomb and a binding. A cry of the world continuously calling on compassion. That's our practice. The world continuously calling on compassion. Hear us, hear us. In this story, in the 25 sages in the Surindama Sutra, sharing their paths to enlightenment, Avalokiteshvara was the last one to share her story. When the Buddha asked Manjushri to judge the paths, Manjushri chose Avalokiteshvara's as the best. Manjushri's choice was inevitable. Manjushri and Avalokiteshvara being the embodiments of wisdom and compassion. They're an inseparable pair. couple of lovers, because compassion without wisdom easily falls into what's called idiocy. Wisdom without compassion easily hardens into heartlessness. So let's ask ourselves today, are we compassionate, are we wise? What kind of person am I? What kind of person are you? Is there a habitual way you have of thinking, of acting, that you'd like to investigate? As Dogen says, investigate. See what the specificity is. Is there some way you can see that the betrayal doesn't have to be final, that you can change? That you can open to the compassion and wisdom that is your natural being, all our natural beings. No one wants to hurt anybody else. So as I put you into these groups, I will put in the chat and I will keep the sound on to insert a bell because I want to ask you to do two different questions. What kind of person am I? Am I engaged with being awake? And if you have time, what's a habit I'd like to investigate?